0: Welcome to the Times of Israel's Daily Briefing. Today is Saturday, December 23rd, day 78 to the war with Hamas. Amanda Borchel-Dan here with our U.S. Bureau Chief Jacob Magid. Hello and thanks for joining me on this one-to-one chat. Thanks for having me, Amanda. The United Nations Security Council voted Friday on a much rewritten resolution regarding the war. We'll hear what happened and what was actually in the resolution in the end. Jacob also spoke with 3 senior Western diplomats last week who worry that Israel is setting the conditions for the Israel Defense Forces to reoccupy Gaza after the war. All this and much much more when we're back.
1: The Technion Israel Institute of Technology is where some of Israel's brightest minds ask the biggest question of all. What if?
0: Early this afternoon, rockets were launched from the Gaza Strip at southern Israel after a lull of nearly 48 hours. The attack set off sirens in the largely evacuated border community of Kfar Aza. 139 soldiers have fallen to date in the Gaza ground offensive, and the Hamas-run Gaza Health Ministry claims more than 20,000 people have been killed in the Strip during the war. This is an unverified figure. Israel says it assesses that troops have killed some 8,000 terror operatives. Jacob, the United Nations Security Council voted on a resolution yesterday sponsored by the UAE, which passed with 13 votes in favor while the U.S. and Russia abstained. So let's start with what was actually included in the language of the resolution.
2: Yeah, so the resolution was quite wordy, but I think the main line in it was toward the end of it, where it calls for urgent steps to immediately allow safe, unhindered, and expanded humanitarian access, and to create the conditions for a sustainable cessation of hostilities. Now, it also demands for a release of hostages, and it reaffirms this resolution passed last month that called for humanitarian pauses. But really, this line that I just said above is, is the most uh, important line of it specifically because this is the first time that we see the phrase cessation of, of hostilities used in a Security Council resolution that's been passed since the start of the war. However, it does stop short of calling for immediately uh, the cessation of hostilities. Rather, it calls for c- creating the conditions for a cessation of hostilities. And this switch was, was enough to get the U.S. on board. Um, but not enough to get it from stopping to abstain, which I can discuss as well.
0: So it's not calling for a direct ceasefire. It has no actual timeline for a ceasefire, but it's talking about moving towards the creation of a situation in which there could be a cessation of hostilities or a dial back from the war in order to what? To create more humanitarian aid conditions or in order to stop the war altogether?
2: So the, the countries would like to see the, st- the war stop altogether. But given that the U.S. And, and really Israel and Hamas are not interested right now in ending the war unless they have the, their certain conditions met, they, the countries and the security councils focus this resolution mainly on getting more humanitarian aid in. And the way they do that is by appointing this, this uh, coordinator to oversee all the aid that will be going into Gaza now, there was a lot of debate over this, and one of the reasons that we had these several delays, in addition to this debate over whether it be immediate ceasefire or conditions for a ceasefire, um, was this issue of the coordinator and how much authority that, that this person would, would, would receive. Israel was, is very against this idea of giving some sort of, of major oversight to this person because they want to be able to continue to control the inspection process of what goes into Gaza, that they don't want to see Hamas smuggling weapons into Gaza right now or smuggling any sort of multi-dual-use goods into Gaza. So they don't want to seed control over inspections to this UN coordinator. The U.S. also opposed this idea because it felt that this is just going to add bureaucracy to the process. And Israel argues that it's it's been... Basically, inspecting hundreds of trucks each day, and that if it weren't for the UN's quote unquote utter failure, which is what Isaac Herzog, president, talked about um, earlier this week, that the more aid would be getting in. Now, the UN, on the other hand, has argued, Antonio Guterres, after the resolution was passed, said that Israel is the problem in terms of aid, that the offensive, the military offensive, makes it impossible for for aid to really get in. So this resolution is going to be kind of toothless as long as the military operation continues, and what we really need to get more aid in is a ceasefire. So there's really not a lot of agreement on this issue. Again, the the switch in the end, after a long time of negotiations and delays, was to basically just give this, we are going to appoint this person that, that they'll be a UN coordinator, but they won't have over overriding authority over all aid, so Israel will still be able to maintain its authority over inspections.
0: So essentially, this UN humanitarian coordinator would be another level of bureaucracy.
2: Correct. I mean, maybe you could argue that the, the, there there hasn't been one until now. And, and we're looking at trucks that are only getting into uh, less than 100 again yesterday for the second day in a row. The the idea of opening Israel opening its Karim Shalom crossing to have aid enter directly into Gaza for the first time since the war was supposed to maybe double numbers of where they were at, which was at roughly 100 trucks a day. And we're not seeing any difference. Um, So maybe it's the issue is the the lack of kind of coordination and, and, and organization in this, that there's chaos at the border. But Israel says it's not the issue.
0: Okay, so two countries abstained from this resolution. That's the United States and Russia. Let's start with Russia. Why did they abstain? So Russia abstained
2: because it wanted the immediate ceasefire language that was included in the first draft to drop this, the idea of conditions toward a ceasefire and just say we need an immediate ceasefire. But really why Russia abstained is that because the U.S. has taken the stance um, against a ceasefire and it's using this opportunity to go after the U.S., for its, for its coming very strongly out against uh, Russia over its invasion of Ukraine. Um, this felt just like another um, theater for the US-Russia war. Um, Linda Thomas Greenfield, after the Russian envoy spoke, called his speech a rant. And the Russian envoy used the opportunity to try to get a last minute amendment passed that would have dr- included the original language of the, the draft, calling for an immediate ceasefire. It was vetoed by the US. So basically Russia said, we're not happy about this draft, but the Arab bloc led by the UAE supports it, so we're not going to block it. Uh, but we do want to make this point that the U.S. is trying to shove its own language through and threatening vetoes when everyone else in the Security Council wants uh, an immediate ceasefire right now which isn't really exactly true. You have this countries like the UK and France who are able to comfortably kind of rely on the US to be the one to veto. Where I'll, well, they, they'll they abstain on the efforts to allow a ceasefire or to call for a ceasefire, um, even though they were talking about the idea of that we can't allow Hamas to maintain control in Gaza. So they rely on the US to do its dirty work for it, I kind of think.
0: Okay, but in this case, the US didn't veto, it abstained. And do you see this as a marked move in terms of policy or, or approach?
2: So the U.S. also abstained on the last um, resolution in November 15th when it was about allowing for humanitarian pauses. And it used the same reason then as it did now to abstain rather than support the measure. And the reason it said is that it doesn't mention or condemn Hamas at all. The Israeli envoy talked about how there was a terror attack in Iran a few weeks ago, and it took the UN Security Council a day to issue a condemnation. And it's been over seventy days since the war started, and nobody's talking about nobody's been issued any sort of condemnation. Or at least the body as a whole is not. The main reason for this is that Russia has blocked it. Again, Russia, who Israel's tried to maintain some sort of relationship, it's avoided trying to get too close to Ukraine because it doesn't want to burn its relationship with Russia. And meanwhile, Russia has taken every opportunity to, to criticize Israel and the UN and prevent it, the Security Council from issuing a condemnation of Hamas. So it's been quite interesting. And and the U.S. basically said we can't support something that uh, doesn't include some sort of condemnation. And and Linda Thomas-Greenfield was pretty impassioned about she just couldn't understand
0: why. So at least overtly, this is not a vote against Israel, meaning the abstention is not some kind of lack of support for Israel. That's what we're hearing, at least.
2: Yeah, I would, I would agree. Um, I think also Israel made a point of not really overly criticizing this resolution. I think the basically the messages that Israel was sending to the U.S. is that as long as you get the language about a immediate ceasefire and, and, uh, exclusive control for this UN coordinator over aid out of the resolution, that it's something that we can live with. And I think that was the message that even in the speech afterwards that the Israeli the deputy ambassador gave, um, was basically saying we would really, were really talking about the need to condemn Hamas, but not overly critical of the specifics of this resolution.
0: Okay, let's go to short break. I got married this Monday in the middle of a war. You are not a soldier anymore. You're 50 years
1: old. What is the matter with you? It's like a couple of kilometers from here. Like My friend has a 4x4. Four four. Let's just go cut across the fields and go get him. Israel Stories, Wartime Diaries. Voices that try to capture slivers of life right now. And he told me, take with you a sleeping bag and a tent <laughs> and just go. I texted
0: him on, like after I was told that he was killed. From their eyes, I was a traitor. Everybody needs their like blankie, their teddy bear, something to make them feel safe. I'm just another grandfather looking after his grandchild while his son is off at war.
1: These children of Hamas now will be the killer of my
0: children. I desperately wanted to talk about sex during my eulogy for Ido.
1: Everyone has to choose to be optimistic because we don't have room for pessimism. Check out Israel's story wherever you get your podcasts.
0: And we're back. Last week, you spoke with three senior Western diplomats who told you that the diplomatic echelons are increasingly unconvinced that Israel won't reoccupy Gaza on a permanent basis after the war. So what are some of the reasons why they're worried?
2: Yeah. So basically, I spoke with these three diplomats. Two of them are ambassadors. So they're very senior and and also from countries that have significant influence o- over Israel. Like, I, I can't get any more specific than that based after of the agreement that they they gave to speak with me. But basically, um, all three of them said that the combination of Netanyahu's rejection of the Palestinian Authority returning to govern Gaza, his failure to advance any viable alternatives is how they referred to it, and Israel's assertion that it will maintain overall security control over Gaza are completely dissuading regional and global actors, um, specifically some of these Arab countries, that might be able to help um, govern or, or manage Gaza for a temporary period. They've totally um, alienated those those allies in trying to help, and it's it's left the U.S. with no other options. And and it feels and these diplomats feel that that basically we're going to end up in a scenario where, because we have no other options, that the only viable one is for Israel to maintain the military to just remain in Gaza. And start having to run affairs for the Palestinians there, even though Israel says very much so that it does not want to reoccupy Gaza. Even Netanyahu has said this; his top eight, he's dispatched top aides to say this as well. But when you when you have those circumstances, the diplomats say that we're not going to be left with any other choice; that no one else is volunteering to, to take over Gaza, and that it's just going to end up being the IDF. One interesting thing that one of the diplomats said is that he speculates that eventually Israel will. Will come to an understanding. This isn't what the, that they want. That's in their interest. He compared it to the scenario in Lebanon, where the IDF went in and occupied southern the, the security zone in southern Lebanon for 15 years, and then in 2000, Ehud Barak as prime minister pulled out, given that there was just almost no public support for them staying there. That there were all these soldiers who were being killed. And there wasn't really a, a benefit scene of, of remaining there. And this diplomat said, basically, I, I wouldn't be surprised if this is the scenario that Israel will have to learn the hard way, as he kind of put it, um, saying that I don't see other any other way of getting out of the scenario of reoccupation of Gaza. Um, it was quite a sobering outlook and also interesting to hear kind of the limited degree of, of influence these diplomats think that their countries have over Israel after, after October 7th, where the pain is so strong and kind of... Um, directing a lot of policy decisions is, was the feeling, and uh, just not a very optimistic outlook. They did say that if the government changes, it's possible that, that we could see a different approach, but in the meantime, they just think that there's no other realistic
0: alternative. Okay. Israel obviously already did disengage from the Gaza Strip in 2005. But one thing I've learned from uh, being married to an Israeli man is you start with no, and then you have what to talk about. So we're hearing a lot of no from Netanyahu. There will be a civil administration that does not educate its children to destroy Israel. But from uh, War Cabinet Minister Benny Gantz, we're, we're hearing slightly different things. What else are we hearing out of Israel about the day after?
2: Yeah, so Benny Gantz also talked about local leadership that will run the Gaza Strip, Uh, even when Netanyahu refers to it as, um, I think, basically the same kind of concept of technocrats. This does basically mean the Palestinian Authority. Um, These are people who are affiliated with the, the PA that have kind of been dormant over the past uh, decade plus because Hamas took over the Strip. These are the only ones that kind of weren't totally kicked out of Gaza afterwards. The idea is to try to have these local leaders run the Strip, but obviously they're going to need the backing of a much stronger body and and they're still connected to the PA, so it's effectively the PA. Israel just doesn't want to talk about the PA. Um, given how unpopular it is. I mean, Abu Mazen, just months ago, we were talking about the kind of crazy anti-Semitic um, Holocaust-related remarks that he was making, and there's not obviously not a lot of appetite. And even Yair Lapid, the opposition chairman, is talking about uh, it can't be Abu Mazen, it's got to be someone else. So I think quietly we're seeing some recognition that it will have to be PA-affiliated, Um but basically, there isn't a lot of other ideas given. There's this throwing away of this idea that the Arab state will do this with our moderate Arab partners. But the UAE and Saudi Arabia have been very clear over the past couple weeks that we're not going to give one dollar or one penny, I think one of the ambassadors referred to it, to Gaza reconstruction unless it's part of a two-state model that this has to lead to to an end to the conflict that we don't want to be giving more money to Gaza right now if it's just going to be flattened again in a few years uh, if, if, uh, if there's another war. So I think we're really at a standstill and I think um, Israel... It doesn't seem like it's going to get a lot of support from its Arab allies unless it's part of this two-state deal, which is not going to happen under this government.
0: So the Biden administration has five principles for post-war Gaza. Can you list them off? This is a pop quiz.
2: So the five are, and let's see if I can do this, no using Gaza as a launch pad for terror, no reoccupation of Gaza. so they're not a big fan of this idea that they that seem some of these diplomats think is inevitable. That's number two. Three is no displacement of Palestinians that Israel's been quietly asking Egypt and other countries to maybe take in some of these Palestinians. That's very much a non-starter for for Egypt. doesn't want to be seen as complicit and so in, in what they see would be a Nakba. And just the US has gotten that message and said, okay, that's our third principle, no displacement no blockade of Gaza either, that we don't want to see another scenario where Israel maintains blockade over Gaza for even if it's for security reasons. The hope is that it won't need to. And that's the idea of no using the first principle of not, Gaza not being able to be a launch pad for terror. And the fifth one is no reduction of Gaza's territory. And this is another, um, clash with Israel because Israel's talking about creating a buffer zone, a security buffer zone in Gaza to prevent the October 7th kind of like, uh, invasion from taking place again. Um This is a non-starter for the U.S. that says we can't continue to shrink Gaza's territory. It's already small enough. It's already crowded enough. And it's this is Palestinian land and it's going to remain Palestinian land is the line that we're hearing from U.S. officials. So those are the principles guiding basically the U.S. approach. Uh, it, there's some, obviously the first one, there's agreement with Israel. It doesn't want to see Gaza being used as a launchpad for terror, but there's a lot of room for disagreement. Um And I think... If if Israel doesn't start talking more about the day after um, publicly and not just saying what it's not interested in, this more this pro U S approach is going to be the one leading the narrative moving forward.
0: Okay, so Biden is coming off as really kind of tough, fully supportive, but tough, and surprisingly, or not, in Israel there was a recent poll that asked. Israelis, who they would support for the next presidency, should it be Biden or Trump? And obviously, we know that Trump was highly supportive of Israel. We saw under Trump the Abraham Accords. We saw the recognition of the Golan Heights. We saw the move of the embassy to the capital city of the country, Jerusalem. And yet, Israelis are now supporting Biden. How do you explain that, Jacob?
2: Yeah, this poll was quite remarkable. It had 40% of Israeli, Jewish Israelis, Basically, I think 500 of them were polled. 40% of them said they would prefer Biden um, be president in the next election that, that he would win, and while just 26% said they would prefer Trump. Um, the rest of them were either unsure, different, different, various answers. But those were the two main ones. And it it shows. It comes after basically the series of speeches, especially right after October 7th. That Biden gave um, showing his empathy and support for Israel. Also, this move of the aircraft carriers and the nuclear submarines to try to prevent the conflict from spreading, to try to prevent Iran and Hezbollah from getting any ideas to, to follow Hamas's lead. And also, this, of course, this wartime visit to Israel, um, the first one that a US president has made in this kind of nature, where um, he also took time to to meet with the families of the hostages. He's called the families of the hostages, even before Netanyahu did. And this effort to show empathy where there was a feeling, I think, in amongst Israelis based off of polling that wasn't being shown by Netanyahu. And I think we saw Netanyahu kind of switch in his um, approach because of Biden that this has really touched Israelis in a lot of ways. And this was happening as Trump in a recent campaign event was basically mocking the intelligence failure that led to October 7th. He called Gallant, the defense minister, a jerk and went after Netanyahu, who again, he's got this whole beef over because Netanyahu congratulated Biden after Biden won the election in 2020 because Trump doesn't think he lost. So amongst those that backdrop, we see this massive support for Biden compared to Trump. Um, And this is just a total swing from 2020 where there was a poll that asked Jewish Israelis um, who they prefer, and 70% preferred Trump over Biden, who just received 13%. Of course, this was, as you mentioned, after the Abraham Accords, the embassy move and the Golan Heights recognition. Um, So a lot of things that Trump did actually in actions that would have warranted a lot of support, but I, I guess I think... Given the trauma that Israelis uh, endured on October 7th and seeing how Trump reacted, that is really um, sat with his, the, the, the feelings that they get from Tr- and Biden and versus Trump after is what, is what is guiding their responses to this poll. And I don't think we've seen this kind of support for a Democrat over a Republican in, in several decades. We had Bill Clinton, I think is the last example of a Democrat who really enjoyed this kind of affinity from Israelis that you over over Republican candidates. You had this brief also period where George W. Bush was running against Al Gore in 2000. And I think the difference was where George W. Bush was seen as a repeat of his connected to his father, who was more hawkish on, or tough on Israel and Al Gore was running with Joe Lieberman, who was a, um, obviously the first Jewish uh, vice presidential candidate. So there was a a, a bit of support and uh, of for, for 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 Gore at the time over over Bush. But I think really Clinton is the best example. And we'll see what Biden chooses to do with this political capital that he's now got with Israelis at a time where it comes right when Israelis are particularly down on Netanyahu, according to polls. Um, so we'll have to see what he do- what he does because I think there's. I think there's going to be a push in, in the U.S. to use this political capital to maybe push Israel towards a two-state solution, which is not something that Israelis are very supportive of right now. Um, but given that they trust Biden over Netanyahu, maybe there's something you can do there.
0: I can't tell you how many Israelis have asked me if Clinton just can't run again and be the president again of the United States. Now, finally, if there's one hostage that has captured the world's attention and hearts, it's 85-year-old Yafa Adar, who was photographed being taken hostage from kibbutz near Oz on October 7th to Gaza, smiling serenely on a golf cart with armed and masked Hamas Terrace right next to her. So on last week's episode of Channel 12's Uvda investigative program, Adar shared her story of how she survived 49 days in Hamas captivity. And how did she get through it, Jacob?
2: Well, first of all, uh, I just wanted to, when you talked about her smiling on the golf cart, she she talked about this as well in the interview. And she said that the reason, people thought that she might have dementia. They were so confused of seeing this woman being taken into captivity, this this elderly woman in a golf cart, um, why she was smiling. And she said, I wanted to be able to make sure that my, my children were proud of me, that they knew I was strong and that I didn't break even under these horrible circumstances. And just hearing that message, um, I kind of brought goosebumps to me listening to that. But then also just how she talked about her survival and she said that she every morning she would wake up after barely sleeping at all um, given the conditions and she would sing um Andrea Bocelli um there is this famous song I guess I'll I'll hum it cuz I I uh I don't even it's that it's an Italian name and I, I would butcher the name but it goes da da-da, so she sang that every day and I apologize if that was off key. But um, and she said the day for a while never came until it obviously did. And she said this on Uvda, Hebrew News News Network. Um, I don't really know how, but Andre Bucelli got wind of this, this interview and what Yafa Adar said and wrote a letter to her that was read aloud and basically read to Yaffa Adar, this 85-year-old woman, on this week's program. And he says, Dearest Madam Yaffa Adar, I wish I could give you a hug. I would like to thank you for the emotion that your story aroused in all the people that had, who had the privilege to listen to it, and especially in me, as quite incredibly, I am part of it. And he goes on to tell her that he would love—he's so touched by the story that that he could be someone that helped her get through this impossible time, and that he invites her to—he would love to come and sing to her whenever she wants, wherever she wants. Uh, he wants to be able to give that gift to her, and she—he would love to meet her. And this letter is read aloud by Yafa Adar's granddaughter on to Yaffa Adar for the first time. They filmed the incident, the, the, the inter- interaction. And, and Yaffa Adar is speechless. She goes, wow, wow, I can't believe this. Andre Buccelli knows who I am. And she takes the letter and hugs it to her chest. Um, and it was just this really touching moment for, for some woman, for a woman who's still has, um, a loved one in Gaza. And and still and went through an unimaginable um, ordeal um, and is able to maybe there at least one for now is able to get a smile and a a heartwarming moment for her that that is able to she talked about starting this new life that she doesn't want to have anything to do with what happened to her in the past and I I hope this will help her start that kind of new life.
0: You know, Jacob, I'm not sure, but I think in English the song is. Time to say goodbye. So thank you for joining (laughs) me today.
2: Thanks for having me, Amanda.
0: Thanks for listening to the Times of Israel's daily briefing. Please check out another episode tomorrow. This episode was produced by The Podwaves. If you have questions or comments about this or other episodes, please send us an email to podcast at timesofisrael.com. Until tomorrow, shalom.